Turn, if you will, to John chapter 18. John chapter 18. We, we're going to take a few moments to look at John's particular perspective on Easter Sunday and a point that I think he makes repeatedly throughout the passage. John chapter 18, the fourth gospel written by, we believe, Jesus' closest associate, the one whom Jesus loved. If you'll look with me at verse 28. Of course, this is in the context of the trial, which is really a kangaroo court against the Lord. Verse 28, then the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas, the head high priest, to the palace of the Roman governor. And by now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, the Jews did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. Now, if we had read all of the passage, we'd know they had told repeated lies, they had bullied people, they had done all kinds of evil things, but they didn't want to be ceremonially unclean. That's why Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. They were worried about the appearance with, while neglecting who they really were. So Pilate, verse 29, came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? If he weren't a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, the Jews objected. And this happened so that the words Jesus had spoken indicating the kind of death he was going to die would be fulfilled. He had said he would be lifted up, which is a picture of the crucifixion. The Jews did not do crucifixion. They killed by stoning when they were allowed to. So he had to be executed by the Romans in order to fulfill all things. Verse 33. Pilate then went back inside the palace and summoned Jesus and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. It was your people and your chief priests who handed you over to me. What is it you have done? And Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. So you are a king then, said Pilate. And Jesus answered, you're right in saying I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born. And for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. And everyone on this side of the truth listens to me. What is truth? Pilate asked. It's always intrigued me that in the middle of the Easter story, Pilate asks one of the most basic questions of all of life, and that is, what is truth? What is truth? We live in a time where truth gets bandied about a great deal, and, and there's so much confusion. I, I, I make it a habit of reading the Wall Street Journal, which is a conservative newspaper, and then online, the Washington Post or New York Times, which is not quite so conservative. You know what I'm saying? And, and reading their reports on the Mueller report is like reading reports on two totally different events. You read one, and it says this. You read the other one, and you think, are they talking about, maybe there are two reports and they only got, I mean, it's astounding how much difference of perspective there is, which begs the question, what's the truth? We live in an era where truth has, quite frankly, been abused. In fact, Stephen Lawson of Ligonier Ministries says it this way. We see it everywhere today. Humanism says man is the truth. 
Pragmatism says whatever works is the truth. Pluralism says everyone has a piece of the truth. Relativism says each situation determines the truth. Mysticism says intuition is the truth. Skepticism says no one can know the truth. Hedonism says whatever feels good is the truth. Existentialism says self-determination is the truth. Secularism says this present world is the truth. Positivism says whatever man confesses is the truth. This is the world in which we live, the rejection of truth. And of course, that has been heightened and a great deal of attention has been brought about because of the postmodern movement. Postmodernism is especially shown to be absurd in many of its understandings. That, that perfect source of all truth, Wiki, says this about postmodernism. While encompassing a wide variety of approaches, postmodernism is generally defined by an attitude of skepticism, irony, or rejection toward the meta-narratives or ideologies of modernism, often calling into question various assumptions of enlightenment rationality. Consequently, common targets of postmodern critique include universalist notions of objective reality, morality, truth, human nature, reason, language, and social progress. Analytical philosopher Daniel Dennett declared postmodernism the school of thought that proclaimed there are no truths, only interpretations, which is a quote of Nietzsche, has largely played itself out into absurdity, but has left behind a generation of academics in the humanities disabled by their distrust of ver the very idea of truth and their disrespect for evidence, settling for conversations in which nobody is wrong and nothing can be confirmed, only assertive with whatever style you can muster. In the New York Times, Daniel Farber and Susanna Sherry wrote this, if the modern era begins with the European Enlightenment, the postmodern era that captivates the radical multiculturalist begins with its rejection. According to the new radicals, the Enlightenment-inspired ideas that have previously structured our world, especially the legal and academic parts of it, are a fraud perpetuated by white males to consolidate their power. And those who disagree are not only blind but bigoted. The enlightenment goal of an objective and reasoned basis for knowledge, merit, truth, justice, and the like is an impossibility. Objectivity in the sense of standards of judgment that transcend individual perspectives does not exist. Reason is just another code word for the views of the privileged. The enlightenment itself is merely replaced one socially constructed view of reality with another, mistaking power for knowledge. There is nothing left but power. Now, certainly, certainly, narratives that we have inherited from the past can themselves be lies. But, but, but the point is that we have adopted a new culture, a new way of thinking that has ultimately denied the very reality, the very existence of knowable truth. And as Paul Johnson, the British philosopher, makes the point, uh, historian makes the point in modern times, when, when something begins in academia and is taught, the way it often filters down to us masses is even more confusing, so that now the average person speaks openly about your truth and my truth, as if 
Truth is something we generate and own and create, and there is no objective truth that extends beyond those things. Now, we know that there are certain truths we can't ignore. There's gravity. Many of us boys tried to ignore gravity, jumping off of houses and other things. Several men are nodding like this, and we discovered that we weren't capable of overcoming that. That was an objective truth to which we all agreed. But beyond that, we've come to the point where, where we've actually begun to teach that so much of life is just what we choose, that truth is what we want it to be. The problem with that is if there's no objective truth, if there's, if there's nothing upon which we can depend that is universal, then on what basis do we disagree? Where does reason fit into that? How, how do we argue a point? How do we come to consensus? Well, you see in our society the way we do it. Power wins. It's who yells the loudest. It's who abuses the most. And so we have a political and social discourse that is so broken, so broken, because we no longer have that shared idea of truth that we can come together on. Now, it's my personal conviction that this isn't a postmodernist invention. I, I personally think that Pilate asked the question because we've always struggled with the truth. The reality is, in my opinion, I've always wanted the truth to be what I want it to be. And you can hear that in debates with my wife. She often wins, but not for lack of trying. You know what I'm saying? I mean, the reality is that, that we all tend to gravitate toward a truth that we can construct that fits our biases and prejudices. But, but historically, in the Western world, we have understood that there was a truth that was dependable upon which we could count. And that because the universe was created by a reasonable God, therefore, it could be studied with a dependence on reason, and it would be knowable, and it would make sense, and therefore, it was our task to pursue that knowledge and truth. And when that truth overcame, hello, when that truth overcame our preconceived opinions, we had to submit to it, right? And Pilate demonstrates that struggle here. In fact, read with me how this plays out. 1838 of John, what is truth, Pilate asked. With this, he went out again to the Jews, and he said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner of the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? And they shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now, Barabbas had taken part in the rebellion. And Rebe Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and they clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and saying, Hail, King of Jews. And they struck him in the face. And once more Pilate came out and said to the Jews, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know I find no basis for a charge against him. And when Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. And as soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him, because as for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. Did you notice that? You see what just happened? 
Pilate says, what is truth? And then immediately repeats three times. In effect, he's innocent. He's innocent. He, he asks what is truth and then affirms to Jesus' enemies three different times. There's no basis for a charge against him. What does John want us to see? This isn't about truth. So if Pilate knew that, why did he hand Jesus over for crucifixion? Well, the text makes that clear as you continue reading. Um, verse 7, chapter 19, verse 7, the Jews insisted we have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where did you come from, he asked Jesus, but Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you realize I have the power either to free you or to crucify you? And Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. And from then on, verse 12, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jews kept shouting, if you let this man go, you're no friend of Caesar, because anyone who claims to be king opposes Caesar. Why did Pilate compromise? Because he didn't want to mess up what he had. He, he knew that if report got back to Caesar that he, he allowed this man who claimed to be king to go free, that he would suffer the consequences. In fact, Pilate ultimately was condemned because of those, that kind of political intrigue. And even though he knew the truth, he chose not to embrace it. He, he had too much to let go of. See, the reality is that even when we know the truth, we sometimes just choose to ignore it because the truth is disturbing and it, it, it can cause problems for us. But, but Pilate is a perfect example of someone who, who clearly proclaimed that he knew what was right and what was wrong, and he chose not to submit to it. Verse 15, they said, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. What's going on with the religious leaders and the chief priests? They don't care what the truth is. They've openly lied about Jesus. Here they're openly lying about their relationship with Caesar. They had no willingness to submit Caesar. In fact, their hope was the Messiah would come and free them from Caesar. This wasn't an issue for them at all. They, they no longer cared about the truth. They wanted Jesus dead. And the reality is that oftentimes, oftentimes in this broken world, the truth has come to be meaningless and disregarded. Look down with me at verse 31. Jesus is on the cross. Verse 31, it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jews did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The Roman habit was to leave the bodies on the crosses to decompose as a warning to society. But in Israel, they requested not to have that because of the 
nature of uncleanness laws. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. Uh, verse 36 says, these things happened so that Scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another Scripture says, they will look at the one they have pierced. In other words, he points to this as fulfillment of prophecy. But look at verse 35. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. And he knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. Uh, truth is a huge theme of the Gospel of John. Chapter 1, the law was brought through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus. Chapter 8, the truth shall make you free. Chapter 14, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And here John in his writing says, I know this is the truth because I saw it, and therefore, what? You can trust it. You can trust it. On what do we make our decisions today? On what basis did we decide how to live? Have we deteriorated to the point as a society where what is right, no matter what the consequences, is what determines our actions? Or have, have we deteriorated to the point that we live based on what we feel and, and what makes us comfortable? That's the gospel has always declared that it is worthy of our trust and our belief because it is verifiably true. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, 500 men and women together saw the resurrected Jesus, and most of them are still alive. Implication being, go ask them yourself. When you read the gospel accounts of the resurrection, repeatedly there's descriptions of people who personally witnessed Jesus' resurrection and responded to it. Implication, go ask them yourself. This isn't just one of many opinions according to the gospel writers. It is the reality of what happened. And therefore, it is something that you and I have to respond to. You'll skip down with me to chapter 20. Jesus has been removed from the cross by Joseph of Arimathea and put along with Nicodemus in the grave. And early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and she said, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they put him. John wants us to know that Jesus' closest associates still didn't believe he would be resurrected. He wants us to know this isn't something they made up out of their own convenience. In fact, even when they saw the, the evidence of it, they still couldn't believe it. Why? Because people aren't resurrected. It doesn't happen. It's not normal. If it, if it happened, that would cause the world to take notice, right? 
So Peter and the other disciple, probably John, started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And he bent over and looked at the strips of linen lying where they uh, were, but did not go in. And Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. And he saw the strips of linen lying there, and as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. And finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and he believed. He saw and he believed. He believed because he saw. Because verse 9, they still didn't understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. So the disciples went back to their homes and Mary stood outside the tomb crying as she wept. She bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated with Jesus' body at, had been and one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize it was Jesus. Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Seeing he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, she still doesn't get it. Tell me where you've put him, and I will go get him. Jesus said, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, don't hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I'm returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord, she told them, what she had seen and the things he said to her. And on the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them. Peace be with you, he said. He showed him his hands and his side, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. And he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. I think an analogy to the God, the Father, breathing life into Adam in the garden. Now the Son breathes new life into his disciples. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you don't forgive them, they are not forgiven. So Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. And the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. He said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand in his side, I will not believe it. And a week later, the disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. And the, do the doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. He said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it into my side. And stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said, Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, because you have seen, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which aren't recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of, the God, of God, and that believing in him, you may have life in his name. John wants us to know that the disciples who saw Jesus in his resurrected form believed because of what they saw.
They entrusted themselves because what they'd experienced. And one of the great arguments for the reality of the resurrection is because of what you see these modest, ordinary men and the community around them accomplish in the coming years. They went from being fearful and hiding from the Jews behind locked doors to courageous and fearless advocates of this gospel, this story of the resurrected Christ, to the point that nearly every one of them would give their lives in brutal deaths. In other words, you, John wants us to see this just isn't a spiritual opinion or an experience. This isn't just one of many decisions that we can make, but that we were there. And it's true. And you can trust it. And you can act on it. My argument with postmodernism isn't that it's questioned some of the assumptions that we've had, because many of those assumptions can be wrong. My argument with postmodernism is when it says there is no truth that you can know, only truth that you decide. Because even simple people like me know better than that. We all understand that there are facts and that facts are inconvenient things. They can't be ignored when we know they're true. And the gospel writers want us to see that this story about Jesus, that, that he is the resurrected Savior, that he was put to death and everyone agreed he was dead and he was put in a tomb and everyone agreed that he was dead and then he suddenly, uniquely came alive and moved around the earth and hundreds of people experienced the reality of that. These writers want us to see that he didn't just teach good things but he had demonstrated a power much more important than just his teaching. He didn't just teach that sin was wrong, he overcame sin on the cross. He didn't just hate death the way you and I do. He defeated it when he was resurrected on that day. Facts are stubborn things. The gospel writers want us to see that this is a story which is true. And if it's true, it should change everything else. Because, men and women, what if it is true? What if there is one who had victory over sin and relieves you and me of our responsibility for all that we've done if we'll but trust in him. What if it is true that death doesn't win? Uh, What if if it's true that through him we can experience an eternity what God designed for us when what we all long for in our deepest hearts? What if it is true that what the disciples proclaimed and the angels verified and 2,000 years of church history has supported, and that is that Jesus is the Son of God who intruded into this tired old earth and offered forgiveness for all who would trust him? What if it's true? 
that this isn't just a philosophy, a nice thought. What if it is the truth that can actually set us free? Just as he was freed from death, you and I can be freed in him. See, the problem is, even those of us who believe the resurrection too often act as though death wins. We too often fear the darkness around us. We too often act like we might be on the losing side. But in the resurrection, Jesus himself is established and proved and proclaimed that God has written the end of the story. And in that end, life wins. Life wins. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we yearn for truth. We debate truth. We argue over truth, but we yearn for it, just as we learn, yearn for life and light. We struggle to know what the truth is when so many sources claim different answers and people that we love disagree. But we thank you that today, that this is a day not built around assumptions or prejudice or opinions. It's a day rooted in facts that hundreds of people declared. That is that your son had victory over death and that that is true. And that by his victory over death, all that he teaches and all that he proclaims suddenly has meaning in a way that it never did. Lord, we pray that we would live as though the resurrection is true, that we would trust your son because he had victory over death and that we would be examples of what that life can mean to a world that's broken and hurting and stumbling in the darkness. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.